Welcome back to the Turn Row Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan, and with me, as always, is Kevin. Hello, everybody. And we have Dr. Katie Lewis back on the podcast again. Hello. Thank you for having me back. Thank you for joining us again. Hopefully, I'm glad we hadn't scared you away yet. Glutton for punishment, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yep, exactly. Uh, So today, we're, uh, or Katie's going to talk about the mystery of potassium, the ever elusive potash. <laughs> so, um, I guess let, that's a good way to start. So, Katie, before we got on, to, uh, told us the history of why it is called potash. And I talked about how that annoys me. Yeah. That we call it potash. So, Katie, can you tell us the history of the verbiage? Sure. So it comes, it goes back to an early production technique where potassium was leached out of wood ashes and they were using big pots and what was remaining after um, evaporating the leachate was the potassium. And so it is the ash that's in the pot and that's where the term potash comes from. See, it's not so bad. Either. It's actually <laughs> some history that goes back to it. I enjoy history. This is a word that's like nails on a chalkboard. <laughs> it used to be, but it's not. Oh. So, I mean, where is is most of your potassium source now? It's not necessarily. It's not the. It's not necessarily potash anymore. No, so most of it's being mined. Uh, Mosaic is probably one of your larger um, potassium dealers. Uh, A lot of that comes from, um, there's some mines, I believe, in New Mexico. There's some in Florida. Um, But it's all K-Rock, isn't it? It's all a mined mineral. There's not, there's no Haber-Bosch method no, definitely not. And, and there are, I guess, um, they're coming up with newer formulations of potassium, but yes, it's all going to be coming from potassium rock. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I guess, Katie, we'll just turn it over to you and we can, we can, you can start where you would like to about the mystery, uh, that is potassium. The it is. The mystery. Wrapped in yeah. Enigma is a very good description of it. So we have been working on potassium. Well, first, I know that there are faculty members across the United States and probably outside the United States that have been working on potassium their entire careers and have yet to really identify what is um, causing the inconsistencies. I think a lot of times it goes back to environment. But at the start of my career, oh, six years ago, I was fortunate enough to be involved with a beltwide cotton potassium study um, that was occurring across the cotton belt. And they were looking at a dry source of potassium, so double O60, muriate of potash, Ethan. Um, <laughs> Jab, jab. Yeah, just a little. Uh, In dry broadcasting that and then uh, knifing in 0015, which was just a liquid formulation of KCL. And um, looking at the response, they had several different rates that were also included. It was a three-year study, and I was fortunate enough to draw draw the short straw and get to write that paper up, and the results were all over the board. Um, We had some sites that would respond that had potassium levels in their soil over 300 parts per million with our critical level in Texas being 150 parts per million. So we were double the critical level, but yet we were still seeing a response to potassium. But then we also had soils that were 50 to 60 parts per million at the zero to six inch depth, and they didn't consistently see a response. So like I said, the results were all over the board as far as what we saw. Um, And then there's several different theories behind all of that. Um, Have y'all seen the same things, I guess? Yeah, I mean... That we, we we've heard and and tested some theories that it causes strands, 
less stress in plants mm -hmm. when we have a high heat or I'm going to call it a blast furnace heat, you know, where, where it's just the plants rolling up that they'll tend to be more relaxed if there is adequate or more than adequate potassium levels. Um, mm -hmm. But in Southwest Kansas, much like your part of the world, our sands, we typically apply, um, you know, potassium of some sort. Yeah. And in the tight ground, um, not so much, but it has been an argument like, okay, what, like you were talking about your critical level. Mm -hmm. and and we throw out 300 but then there's some people say that it needs to be more than that yeah so you know it's just like you said there there's it's well maybe and then you know if you want to do it you you try but yeah i like with, with us it varies dramatically what our parts really are um when you have a if you're in a vegetable rotation they're gonna put out excessive amounts of everything Mm -hmm. the season's too fast and the crop's too valuable not to have enough. So, and you can tell which fields have historically had a cabbage or potatoes or whatever, you know, that, um, those parts for millions could be anywhere between 500 and 700. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. when we go to put cotton or corn, we don't put anything. We're trying to get some of that off. Um, and I, what I use typically on cotton is about a somewhere between 300 and 400 is kind of my cutoff. If yeah. for zero to put nothing out. Yeah. Um, would you, when you were getting a salt test back, would you, how available would you consider that? <laughs> so I'm, I'm definitely, conversation. I'm sorry. Do I I've already derailed this conversation? No, you're good. I think that's a very important question. And my answer is going to be one that drives people crazy. And I'm going to say it depends because <laughs> it really does depend on the mineralogy of your soil and what your potassium fixation potential is. Um, if you have soils that are high in two to one clays, they're going to have a much higher fixation potential because of that collapse um, and trapping potassium in between those inner layer spaces. Uh, we've also learned uh, studying potassium that there can be wedge zones in some of our clay minerals uh, where potassium can get trapped. Ammonium can exchange with potassium, but those plant roots, the plant roots aren't able to access the potassium. So, and the reason I bring up ammonium is most of our um, extractants that we're using for soil testing are ammonium-based extractants. But we're going to get a higher level than what actually might be there. My, one of my major theories is that we are overestimating what is truly plant available in the soil. Okay. And the, the only way to really get a good idea is going to be to understand the mineralogy of your soil and what your fixation potential is. And so if you're a grower out there, what is the best way to determine your mineralogy? Is it soil test survey? Is it a texture test? Um, so you can get some of that information just going to web soil survey. Um, it can provide some of the mineralogy background, um, just what your soil classification is. A texture analysis isn't going to tell you anything other than what the percentage of sand, silt, and clay is. And... Um, but it's understanding not just the mineralogy of your clay particles, but you can also have that in sand fractions too. And so it's really important that you, you look at the bulk soil. There are some labs, um, if you contacted your universities, there would be some labs that would be able to look at the actual mineralogy of your soils. So we need your lab's address so we can start mailing. <laughs> well, and I, we would have to go to the geology department at Texas Tech to be able to do that. Or in soil and crop sciences, our mineralogist at A&M, he also mm -hmm. has an XRD that would allow us to determine what the mineralogy is. This sounds expensive. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, we can do things like looking at fixation potential in our lab, which is important. Um, and to me, that's going to give a better idea of what is, is truly going to be available. Um, and from what I've seen in our sandy soils, um, we're about 65% um, fixation potential in our soils. And 
there was a study that was a paper that was published out of California back in the early 2000s, I believe, where they said any soils um, that had greater than 60% fixation potential would likely see a response to added potassium, even at those high soil K levels. Can you explain the fixation, that definition for our listeners? Sure. So the fixation. Please. <laughs> <laughs> so the fixation potential that goes back to the type of clay minerals, the minerals in the soil. So if you have two to one clays, which means you're going to have an octahedral layer in between two tetrahedral layers. And with two to one clays, you can have the collapse of those clays. And when they collapse, due to maybe wetting drying cycles, um, when they collapse, they trap potassium and ammonium in between those layers. And they're okay. no longer available. However, they could become available throughout the growing season. Gotcha. Gotcha. Is, is that why we will see? I mean, I know, I know potassium is more available when there's more um, moisture. Yes, there's more soil solution. Is that the right word for that? Yeah. yeah. So, so this is why when we have excessively dry sand or gravelly soil we will, you'll see a collapse in the, is that part of that? Yeah. So I think you're going to see more of that in more of your heavier textured soils. So your clay soils, but in the sandy soils, um, I think a lot of that just goes back to the way potassium moves in the soil. So it just can't um, move because there's no, there's no, there's no bus for it. Exactly. It has to be in soil solution. Okay. Yeah. But when you go to heavier soils, that's when you're going to start seeing your clay collapse. Yeah, and you may have greater fixation potential, but in our sandy soils um, that we work in with on the majority of our acres here, we still have the 65% fixation potential. So that's why I mentioned it's not necessarily just about the clay minerals. Um, this And this may be go, going back to the mystery or the enigma of potassium is that there, there's so many different factors coming into play. Yeah. There's also the issue of um, compaction. Compaction can have a big influence on potassium availability. Um, and because of root growth, root penetration, if you don't have an environment where roots can grow and penetrate the different areas of the soil, then most likely you're going to have less potassium being taken up. And I have a, a colleague um, that I think you used to work for down in College Station, Dr. Proven. Did you not work in the? Never heard of the guy. What are you talking about? Oh, really? You didn't work in the soul testing lab? Different person. Okay, can we cut that? Back yeah. <laughs> we can oh, that. so you did work for? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did. So, <laughs> made kidding. me feel crazy there for a second. I was like, no, I could have sworn you worked yeah, for. I'm trying to bury those memories. Oh, yeah. uh, and the, like, so a brief back history of my employment there. They moved the lab. Uh -huh. That's kind of why I was hired was to help move it. Oh, I'm not sure how, if you've ever moved a soul oven. Uh, that's horrible. Yeah. yeah. They're heavier than they look. <laughs> they look pretty heavy. Um, anyways, that, that, that's all that the, the moving of a soil lab and the amount of dust you find is. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. Um, so you did work for the soil testing lab. Well, Tony Proven um, is confident that a lot of the potassium issues that we see goes back to roots and compaction. And aeration in the soil also can limit potassium uptake. Well, that kind of makes sense when we briefly mentioned about drought. Mm -hmm. You know how typically if you have a droughty plant, it's not going to have the root system Yeah, if, it, if it's nice and good growing conditions to do such, or yeah. I guess the correct statement would be to produce the root structure before it has to grow yeah. upward. Yeah. yeah. So there's a lot that has been looked at. Um, we've also looked at, well, sticking with the belt wide study. So we looked at yeah, different I'm, rates. I want to stop you for a minute before we get oh. too far. So we mentioned the 65% Oh, yeah. What is a what is would you consider a high or a good or bad 
what's your, uh, give us a scale on what that would fit in. So I think once you get above 60% is where you need to start considering um, applying more than what your typical recommendation would provide. So we know that if we sent a soil sample off and we had 300 parts per million potassium in our top zero to six inches, we're not gonna get a recommendation for potassium, at least not if we sent our sample to the um, A&M soil testing lab. However, if you had a 70% fixation potential, you may need to reconsider that applying, you know, depending on what crop it is that you're planting, if it's cotton, you know, anywhere from 40 to 80 pounds of K2O per acre would be my recommendation, depending on yield potentials. Yeah. So, and that would be, uh, um, so what's happening when we talk about fixation potential is you're applying this fertilizer potassium and it's possible that 70% of that potassium that you're applying could be fixed within the interlayer spaces. So that's what that percentage means. Gotcha. 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 Yeah. So it's, it's pretty significant. Yeah. How long does it take for potassium to be broke down in the soil? So that's something, there was a recent um, study that was published that, you know, used to we would think that it would last throughout an entire growing season, but mm-hmm. there's some more recent work that has shown that in the proper environment, of course, that you can have um, greater release of that potassium throughout a given growing period, um, more so than what we previously thought, but there's okay. really no um, set yeah. numbers as far as what will just because it depends on the moisture what types of clays you have right um, right the texture yeah gotcha gotcha okay so um we i know we're kind of going bouncing around here but when you mentioned a zero to six inch soil sample um what depth would you recommend at soil sampling for potassium? Would that be 10 inches to get a full, like a complete? Yeah, I would recommend doing a zero to six and six to 12 so that you know what is in both of those depths. Um, I feel like if you take a zero to 10 inch sample or a zero to 12 inch sample, um, you're kind of diluting out what's there because you are taking a larger sample. So if you, And what we've seen is we can be nearly, if we take a zero to six inch sample and a six to 12 inch sample in the zero to six inch depth, we can have 300 part per million K, but at that lower depth, we can have 100 to 150 parts per million K. So there's a a drastic decrease from that top depth to the lower depth. And roots are gonna take up um, the majority of your nutrients somewhere between four to eight inches. So right there, you know, in between those two depths would be the the place where you're gonna see greatest uptake. Okay, interesting, okay. Do you have um, uh, like a potassium product that is best? And this is kind of going back to like, it depends, but you know, we've yeah. seen in some cases where you get a response from KMAG versus, you know, 0060 or, you know, like a liquid form like you were alluding to earlier. Yeah, I, and this may just be personal preference, but in our drier environment, I prefer more of a liquid source just because you don't necessarily need the moisture to get that product into for sure. solution. For sure. mm-hmm. um, I mean, you still obviously need the moisture for the plant to take it up for it to come in contact with the roots. Um, Are you talking about like a pre-plant um, or is that in season that you're going after that you prefer that? Um, we've looked at both. So with the Beltwide study, it was all pre-plant applied. Um, the 0060 and then 0015 knifed in. And where we saw more consistent response was with the liquid sources, the 0015 okay. And I know a lot of people will just use dry sources to maintain or build the levels in their soil. Most of what I have looked at is going to be liquid formulations. We've looked at potassium thiosulfate, potassium acetate, 
Um, and then also Wilbur Ellis has an IntelliFOS, IntelliFOS 32, that's a liquid formulation of phosphorus. Hey, no, no advertising here. Okay. I'm uh, sorry. No. <laughs> no. no, but we've evaluated all of those and we've looked at um, Vilma's Inferro, foliar applications. I really, you know, if I was going to give my husband orders as to how he needed to apply his potassium, it would be. Oh, doing that. <laughs> it would be an Inferro application. There's just something about putting it right there in the root zone. Mm. Um, and it, it, to me, we get the greatest response from that. And you would say liquid over dry Inferro even? Yeah. Gotcha. That's, okay my preference. Um, we've seen really good luck with potassium acetate. I would tell you what product we've used, but I'm not going to do any more advertising. <laughs> no, Nature's has their K-Fuel, it's potassium acetate that we've looked at for okay. years now. And it sounds like and the only that, problem is that a lot of that, it's you're not getting 60%. Like with 0060, you get 60% potassium. You know, you're dealing with significantly less not, like you're not going to be able to put on the quantity you need if you're yeah. substantially low but if in my opinion you're going to get greater use efficiency with gotcha. your your liquid applications that you're either knifing in or you're putting right in the root zone so you'll have greater efficiency so you should mm -hmm. be able to lower those application rates okay gotcha yeah. gotcha and i don't know if you've noticed the the fertilizer market the last few weeks Dry has skyrocketed in, in liquid, and at least in our area, liquid hasn't changed. Oh, wow. We're starting to, that's, I'm glad you've mentioned that because as we approach corn planting, we're, uh, we're having a lot of guys switch to liquid. Yeah. Yeah, I think the whole um, uh, inner workings of our transportation system of getting fertilizer, getting it made is, in some areas, we, we've seen the same thing with 11520. You have, okay. Mm -hmm. And we're we're just a little bit closer to the port where a lot of that gets sourced. For sure, right? Yeah. yeah so that's that's interesting. Yeah, so I, I don't understand. I, I haven't heard anyone else say that liquid hasn't made a run, but dry has. So, but um, what about like uh, not necessarily chelated, but like we do a lot of chemigation in season, mm -hmm. and it's more more and more popular to use phosphate and potassium. Um, uh, liquids what, mm -hmm. what about stuff like that it's, it's broadcast but it's liquid but it's also in solution because you're chemigating what, what is your opinion on some of those types so are y'all applying it like as a foliar application over the top of the crop or it's through the pivot oh through the pivot yeah, yeah so uh well and i that that's gets a little tricky here just because we have high um carbonates high salt contents in our water and yeah so, your water is going to tie it up yeah, yeah exactly so i really haven't done much of that the thing that we have done though is through subsurface drip irrigation um there are several products that have a very low ph and so not only do they serve to kind of clean out your drip tape free up some of the micronutrients right in the root zone around the emitter, um, but they're also a source of phosphorus and potassium too. I think if you can put it through drip tape or put it through uh, your irrigation system, regardless if it's pivot or below ground, that's going to be the most efficient approach to applying either one of those. Um, even more over doing 0060 broadcasts. Yeah. That's what, this is why we need to have this conversation because at this point we're not having a podcast. I'm just asking you questions. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so cool. So what we've been playing around with here is that I've, I've, I've been very cautious to say that we are seeing some responses to it, but yeah. Um, and of course, to me, the most efficient is going to be knifing in a liquid band because it's going to be the most concentrated. It's going to come in contact with the least amount of soil, less potential for fixation, um, whether it's phosphorus or potassium that we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And like we don't have near the water. Our water is not just beautiful water, but it's not, yeah. it's not what you have in Lubbock. It's, yeah. Um, so, um, I didn't think about that. 
it, you know, so listeners, wherever you're at, think about if you're going to start chemigating. It's yeah, not think nice. about your water. For sure. You might want to do a jar test before you put anything through your pivot or your drip. And also, too, most of our pivots are underslung, so we're not worried about making the pivot fall over. Yeah. <laughs> gotcha. Because we do have um, – we do have, I guess our water's not perfect, but yeah. from that standpoint, it, it doesn't tend to tie up stuff up quite that bad. So, yeah. um, there was another thing we were, uh, did we go over timings of, uh, in season versus, I guess we did a little bit, but do you see different timings within the season that matter? Yes. Um, so just based on when the demand of potassium is, you know, it, it follows very similar to nitrogen with, at least in cotton, most of my research has been in cotton. So the peak demand is going to be um, at about peak bloom would be when cotton has its, its greatest demand for potassium. And um, so that kind of stimulated some ideas of could we not come in and side dress potassium if we do are concerned about, you know, fixation potential and the availability of the potassium, can we not put it out closer to the time that the crop really needs it? And so we started some work where we were looking at pre-plant 100%, 100% applied at about pinhead square, and then a split application with 60% pre-plant, 40% in season. And consistently from one year to the next, we see greater response with the pre-plant application. I think just the way that, you know, cotton works um, is, you know, it's going to take up those nutrients early on, but then just partition them throughout the plant throughout the growing season. So the pre-plant application is still, um, based on our data, the best approach for potassium application times. Um, another aspect of that same project was looking at varietal responses. And there's been some work done in corn that shows that depending on the hybrid that you can get different effects or responses to potassium applications. And so we have looked at four varieties for the last four years, and one of the four varieties consistently responds to potassium application, whereas the other three is kind of hit or miss from one year to the next, whether or not we see a response. That's interesting. Yeah. And it's kind of scary too, right? Sure. I mean, because, <laughs> you know, sure. we have such high turnover of varieties and hybrids with corn. And so how can we really, you know, by the time we've done the amount of testing that would need to be done to determine what those requirements are for that variety or hybrid, most likely they're not even going to be planted anymore. And so it's just, you know, what is it about specific varieties or hybrids that is resulting in that response? And that goes beyond my my scope so engineering <laughs> a race car yeah. <laughs> just the nature of the beast science behind varieties is quick it's fast yeah, yeah. They, they, they turn them over and soil science you have to take the whole season to i mean it's you don't have the off season of growing no uh you know where they grow a lot of cotton varieties like in costa rica and get a second season to expedite and that's not just cotton they do that with corn and everything you know with you know, you can't just take up, you know, an acre for, for a slice from Lubbock and put it in Costa Rica and let's see how exactly. this, you know, yeah. so like soil science is going to be a slower science to get the same amount of data than plant exactly. reading. It's just yeah. the, the beast. So uh, personally, this may sound a little conspiratorial, but I think that we've accidentally selected varieties for certain nutritional needs. You know, like you are, the goal was cert was yield or something else, you know, and by accident, we've selected them to function on this stuff and it wasn't the focus. So it's not really a conspiracy theory. It's just kind yeah. of like, but you're all about conspiracy theories. Aren't you? I, I, I enjoy. <laughs> yeah. The but, secondary problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a happy accident. It's like a little tree. Yeah. Yeah. And does it go back to the root architecture too? Maybe the root architecture of that one variety is different than the other four. And that's some of the conversations that I've had um, 
with, so there are Delta Pine varieties that we've been looking at and I've had conversations with the Bayer guys about, you know, the characteristics, the traits of those varieties. And the one that consistently responds is going to be one that's more of a wimpy variety, I guess you could say, you know, that it's going to not perform as well during those drought conditions or, um, high heat so maybe that's that relationship with potassium because we know it's involved with osmotic regulation within the plant so um, yeah and kind of leads to i think maybe one of our future podcasts that we're going to have where we have been reevaluating nutrient dynamics of more modern cotton cultivars and i think a lot of what we found there could play into some of the potassium issues dynamics that we see now yeah. The ever-evolving science. I know. It's so exciting. I, you, you would be proud of me. The amount of times I have said the word root architecture to my customers. Yeah. It's so important, though. It really is. When you talk about crop yeah. rotations. Yeah. Is, especially when we some of our areas have shallow soils. Uh-huh. You come off the hill country. You're, this is kind of the, the first prairie off of it where some of our Uvalde stuff is. And... Some of those hills are just shallow and there's yeah. just, you know, like there's, there's a lot of limestone left, you know, so you don't have much room for architecture. So you need to balance that with different crops, you know? Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, well, Kevin, what is on your list that we need to go over here? I'm running well, I um, guess you could continue on about the study. I feel like we've been... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> like hammering yeah. questions, but like detouring yeah. from from the you know the study you started. Yeah. With. So one of the main objectives of the the study was to reevaluate what our current critical levels are, and of course, um, be able to make better recommendations for farmers. And so part of it was we would go out and take soil samples. Um, pre-fertilizer application and then um, those soil samples would then be compared back to the relative yields to try to re-establish what the critical level was. And so I mentioned earlier that currently Texas A&M's lab um, is using a critical level of between 125 and 150 parts per million, but based on the data that we collected, it should be closer to 200 parts per million. And that's using a malic free extractant. Mm Um, so to me, that was one of the big major ahas is, you know, we really are, our critical levels may not be um, the best estimates for our more modern cotton cultivars. And so even though, you know, our yields were somewhat all over the board or the response to that added potassium, to me, it was a, a success to see that we should be reevaluating critical levels more often than what most soil testing labs are. Seems like that's a trend, you know, like yeah, we're trying to redefine um, soil fertility, essentially. Like in the yeah. last couple of years, it's it's a big buzzword, like, hey, what do we do? And and how we get more bang out of our buck and yeah are we doing it right? exactly and to me you know at the end of the day everyone wants a farmer to be as efficient as he can and if we haven't reevaluated what um the requirements the demands of the crop are then of course we're not getting, going to be being efficient with our fertilizer applications and and from the work that we have done um our more modern cotton cultivars are definitely much more efficient than what older varieties were. And I think that, you know, that goes into a lot of um, not just the actual cultivar variety itself, but also our other management strategies too. We've been become more efficient. Yeah. This is where uh, env- environmentally sound folks that are off the farm need to realize that efficiency is what is part of what you're after as well. And the farmer wants to be as efficient as possible because that is money. Exactly. More efficient with less money. So that that is where you two are on the same page as the environmentalist and the farmer. So exactly. And that's what aggravates me, you know, 
and y'all can bleep this out if you want to, but, you know, the environmentalists, the people that are anti-farmers, they think that farmers just go out and sling chemicals and, you know, throw fertilizer out all over the place, and that's not at all how it is. They are trying to get the most out of every drop that they put on that farm. Yeah. I think this is a common misconception. You know, they think that... <laughs> They're dumb farmers, right? Yeah, exactly. And and they don't realize that okay, if if my cow dies, or if this doesn't produce, or if I ruin this piece of ground, I can't pass it on to my children, children's uh-huh. children, or I won't be in business. Exactly. Or you won't have your beef, or chicken, or pork, or you know, yeah. it, it's yeah. deeper than <laughs> yeah, and than another, what it seems. Yeah, if something <laughs> happens and you're not able to, at the consumer level, you're going to get some chicken or beef or pork. Because there's another producer that's not having the issues that I may be having. Yeah. But if my land gets ruined or I spend too much money on fertilizer or something, then I don't have nothing. Yeah. I, this is zero dollars. But, <laughs> you know, so the, some of the best steward, stewards of the land are, are, well, I would say most farmers. There's always bad apples. Exactly. You know? No. Um, um, so something else that we haven't, talked about goes back to um, ratios of cations in the soil. So calcium to potassium, magnesium, potassium um, can be issues too. And I don't know, you know, in your area, Ethan, of South Texas or in Kansas, what the calcium magnesium levels are in y'all's soil. But that's one of the concerns I've had here in the High Plains is that our ratios could be off balance. So if you have high amounts of calcium and magnesium, it's not necessarily that, you know, there's reactions that are taking place in the soil, but there's definitely competition for uptake between those cations. But how so I have I happen how, to have a soil test right in front of me. Oh, how do so, you is uh, it effective or is it possible to adjust those? Is the question I have. Because we we've tested, we've had test strips out here or we yeah. put substantial amounts of sulfur or different stuff, uh, lime, you name mm-hmm. it, gyp, and nothing. Have y'all not seen much of a response? Some, I mean, in, in some cases, yes. Some cases, no. Um, but, our, you know, our, our soils are extremely high in calcium and, mm-hmm. you know, very calcareous. And it's like, well, I, I just don't know if you can – <laughs> playing with mother nature you know like can you yeah, really affect the soil solution to the point to where it can uh be managed the way or, or perform the way you want so i think it's one of i think in the long term no you're never going to see you know with your soil report oh well you know i'm reducing my calcium but i'm increasing my potassium i think it's just a consideration that you have to think about whenever your, you know, your soil test doesn't recommend a potassium application, but, you know, my calcium to potassium ratio is 20 to one. So I definitely need to apply 40 pounds of K2O gotcha. just to help, you know, to, to ensure that there is sufficient K available for that plant to take up. That, okay. That way, cause there's competition at the exchange site and calcium yeah. is going to win. Yeah. Um, and so we're talking, you know, three, 4,000 parts per million calcium. If you go out and apply 40 pounds of K2O, no, it's not going to have much of an effect on that ratio, but you're still ensuring that there is K in soil solution available for that plant to take up. So um, a question I've got, we had a guy sent out an email within our organization, did some research on um, the extraction methods of these ratios. <laughs> Surprising. And yeah. so what is your theory on how reliable these ratios, you know, we're trying to manipulate or change these ratios, but is it reliable or can it vary from um, lab to lab? Yeah. So yes, you are going to get very different results. I had a graduate student that worked on, he looked at um, malic free versus ammonium acetate, and then even went and used um, the H3A extract, the Taney Haney and somebody else. 
<clears throat> at a temple. Um, and it was amazing to see the differences in potassium levels that were extracted with those different extractants, with malic 3 extracting the greatest amount. But a lot of times when we're talking ratios, it's more going to be from just a saturated paste. So there it's mm -hmm. how they would determine um, base saturations in a soil. So they're not using the actual extractant. It's just more of a, a water saturated paste that they're going to measure uh, cation concentrations from. So those levels are going to be much greater than what you would see with your malic 3 or ammonium acetate extraction. Does that make sense? It's yeah, but do you, you is like when when you have the paste, how do they read that? You know, like they're using the same instruments. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so it's the same instrument, but no, there could definitely be differences from one lab to the other. Yeah, too. for sure. Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's an <laughs> it's an art, not a science, or it's a yeah. cage, not. I a make number. it up to my customers all the time. If yeah. I ever sell you fertilizer. Do not buy from me. Yeah. <laughs> with the soul probe or yeah. who I send it to, I know how, like, I have to know how to make accurate results. So, therefore, I know how to make inaccurate ones. Yeah. yeah. And the best piece of advice, too, is pick a lab and stick with that lab. For sure. Don't, you know, send one to Servitech one year and AL the next year and then AM. Pick one and stick with it. That's going to be where you get you the greatest. Go to American Ag Labs, McCook, Nebraska. Same shameless plug, you know. Yeah, <laughs> is that where y'all? <laughs> no, a lot of guys yeah. use Servitech. I mean, yeah. we're split. We're probably yeah. split within our company between uh, two labs, mm -hmm. Servitech and American. Um, yeah, but and that's just it's always been that way, and some of it's convenience too. You know, they're they're closer to us than yeah. than some of the university labs, so. And yeah, well, in, those labs. Lab. I was the guy processing those. <laughs> <laughs> and some of it comes back to the, like our, I'm going to call it founding fathers of CropQuest. You know, they were more comfortable with the non-university system because they knew that they were going to be heavier in, in uh, building soil levels or, you know, yeah. um, and so it was just a choice that they made. Yeah. Eight, no, eight I, years ago. And private labs in Nebraska have uh -huh. a whole, they have really strict guidelines that they have to go by. Gotcha. So there's just, um, that, I mean, and I, you know, there's always a per, there's a lot of personal preference in who we use, but. Oh yeah. So. To me, it's who you're most comfortable with and you see enough lab reports too, that you, you know, you get comfortable with a certain lab yeah. and reading those reports. And yep. to me, you know, as long as you're aware of what extractant, what procedures they're using, then for the most part, you'll get good results. Yeah. Unless you have Ethan Wayne not your soul samples. So. <laughs> <laughs> get what you pay for. Yeah. Lick your finger and, and yeah. oh yeah, it's potassium. That's what's uh, that's what our limiting factor is. <laughs> oh, we spilled some soil samples. Oopsie. Yeah. But this was not when I worked for Katie at all. No. 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 <laughs> but uh, uh, and another thing we haven't talked about is every lab has different ways of processing soil samples too. So are they air dried or are they oven dried? Um, that can influence some of your data as well. So again, it just goes back to consistency and using the same lab for year sure. after year. For sure. Yeah. And you might see some inconsistencies from that same lab. Like one time mm -hmm. we had, we got a new grinder at the soil lab when I worked there. Uh, and things changed. It wasn't drastic or bad, but I mean, just the fact that we put would put new blades on the grinder sometimes would. would yeah. Think. I mean, there's a lot that can. My heart goes out to those folks in the soil lab. Oh, I know. <laughs> to grind them and or even, you know, we don't like pulling manure samples, but I'm sure they don't like testing them either. <laughs> no, no. I have some off-air stories about manure samples. <laughs> with them when they're done. So, yeah. yeah. But. Um, so we've talked about, we've talked about banding versus broadcast. We've talked about in season timings. Um, we've talked about, you know, what we have not touched on is foliar, like, uh, mm. like, uh, more of a, a, a true foliar, not necessarily chemigation, but, mm -hmm. um, what is, I guess I'll open it up. And yeah. 
feedback on that? Uh, foliar, you will never be able to provide what the plant needs with a single or even two or three foliar applications. When we look at the amount of potassium or really any other macronutrient that the plant needs, I am not confident that it can be applied with a foliar application. For sure. Now, where I do see foliars being um, a possibility is where you also have a good soil program where you are taking soil samples, um, applying what the crop needs to the soil, but then say, you know, you've got rain just right, you have a really healthy crop, and then all of a sudden it starts showing some symptomology. That may be the case where you could see um, some relief with a foliar application. I still feel like if it's to the point in the plant where we are seeing and a deficiency with our eyes that it may be too late to really get uh, much of a yield response with a foliar application, at least when it comes to potassium. With the micronutrients, I think it is more possible to provide what the plant needs just because the amounts are so much less, but you're also paying for that too. For sure. And foliar fertilizers. Those are expensive. Exactly, yes. And yeah. The, especially, you know, per unit, they're they're very expensive. Yeah. Where we see uh, guys use them as more or so in cotton. Yeah. Um, it was because once you at this might not be real science here, but from what we've always found is when you're starting to approach five bill cotton, there's a time in the cotton's life that the roots cannot support the fruit load. Oh, yeah. And, and also, we have to think about the fact that, you know, at about peak bloom, root production is going to slow way down or root activity is going to slow way down. And so they're not going to be actively taking up nutrients anymore. So that plant has to have taken up what it's going to need to maintain its fruit load. And like you said, a lot of times when you're hitting four or five bell cotton, the plant hasn't taken up up enough of those nutrients to support that kind of production level. Yeah. I kind of look at foliars at that point as a bit of a, a remedy or a, it's kind of like steroids, you know, like, <laughs> because steroids. Like, you're, produ you're pushing a plant beyond it's probably natural limit. And that's how you're trying to get there, but it's not sustainable. No, it's, definitely. it's not economical and you're not going to, if this plant was going to live for 20 years, you're going to have some repercussions from it. You know? Yeah. Um, and that's kind of a odd analogy, but you yeah. know, I mean, typically we can get a, a, maybe a one or two foliars to pencil out late season. If the yield potential is there, if you're, you know, sub four bells, you, you don't have near the problems with potassium yeah. and some of your micros, but fruit shed. Yeah, so I think it's a case-by-case -case situation. We have done lots of trials with foliar applications, and maybe it's because we don't have that five-bell yield potential that you're talking about that we just have not seen the response of a foliar application, even in combination with soil-applied nutrients. Um, there was some work that was done here before I ever started where they did in a really wet year for the high plains and I think it was you know they got 10 inches of rain all at one time and guys couldn't get out in the field to put out fertilizers and I started seeing some zinc deficiencies and so they went out and did some foliar applications and did see a response to that application but it was definitely a one in 50 year type events where they may never see that again. Well like you said when it comes to micros the demand is so low you could probably yeah. You could probably wedge that gap with foliars. Yeah. And we really, I mean, most of our, our micronutrients, at least in our region, um, we're sufficient in the top zero to six inches. We really don't have much of a need. I think boron and zinc would probably be the two most commonly applied micronutrients. We're lucky that we're in an area where manure has been a his, you know, in the history of the fertilizer application that covers a lot of, covers up a lot of stuff. Yeah, exactly. It covers up a lot of stuff. And you also, you have to be careful, especially with excessive 
manure applications too that you aren't causing some imbalances in the mm. soil so mm. really high phosphorus levels causing issues with zinc or other micronutrients yeah so you mean that organic manure is not the answer to all of our <laughs> rat hole no <laughs> Definitely not. Sorry to put you on the spot there, but you know, <laughs> so. regardless of what people want to believe, whenever a plant takes up a nutrient, the majority of the time it's in an inorganic form. So even if you apply an organic fertilizer, it has to be mineralized to the inorganic forms that everyone thinks are so horrible. So boom, you've heard it. <laughs> heard it. From Katie, it is correct. <laughs> that is science. Just drop some science on you. Uh, all right, Kevin, I am getting to the end of my list here. Is there any any other last any last words that we want to? I um, questions we want to throw at Katie or Katie. Do you have anything you want to add? I know. We've yeah. Been- so with when it comes to potassium, I think first and foremost, knowing what's in your soil. Even though we, you know, have some. Um, issues with maybe some of our soil testing methods, I still think, you know, you can tell what's going on from one year to the next, if your levels are staying pretty consistent. But if you see, visually see um, some deficiency symptomologies later in the season, that's when I would start considering applying um, maybe 20 to 40 pounds of K2O per acre um, and do it with and without and see if you see that response on your own field. Um, check strips are huge. You got to know, you got to know what the difference is. Don't try to compare one year to the past year. So exactly. Um, There's definitely, like we've mentioned, there's a mystery behind potassium. I'm convicted to continuing to evaluate it, but it's all about, you know, knowing what's in your soil and knowing how the plant responds to what's in the soil and then trying to find solutions from there. I'm excited for your journey with potassium. This yeah. is, <laughs> I, fertility, I, I mean, fertility has always been a thing as I've got to be, you know, in the consulting world, it's kind of near and dear to my heart. Yeah. You'll find consultants that have these little, everybody works a little differently and they have kind of their own special place and, uh, or not a special place, but like there's certain pet projects of theirs. They, yeah. And fertility has always been kind of my deal. Yeah. And so I get excited about this stuff and get sidetracked. So I apologize for bouncing around from place no, to place. You're good. Potassium is, uh, potassium is extremely important and um, it's extremely mysterious. And I hope that one day it will not There's be. An <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but well, with that, Thank you for joining us once again, Katie. Hopefully yes. we'll have you again. Yeah, thank you. Thank you all very much. It was fun. We'll see you all next time. Awesome. See ya. Our business is knowing the business of growing. We take pride in your success, being better than the rest. Crop quest. <laughs>